4: Tremare i cacciatori di taglie quando lo incontrano. Lo chiamano
1: silenzio. Perché dopo che è passato lui, resta soltanto il silenzio
5: Chi è quel tipo spiritoso col cappello da prete e con la pelliccia rotonda? Tigrelo. Uno che è meglio perderlo che trovarlo.
1: Si tratta di Tigreiro. Ho ucciso mio marito.
3: Ditemi quanto volete. Senti, Muto. Speri che io estraga per primo, vero? Perché non ti lascerò fare il furbo più di me. È un nemico dei bounty killer. È un illuso che crede di rimettere a posto il mondo con la pistola. Ma è venuto per uccidere te. Oh.
2: welcome to the projection booth i'm your host mike white joining me once again is ms maitland mcdonough always a pleasure to be here mike and joining us in the booth is professor evo ritzler thanks
5: for having me mike good to be
2: here Spaghetti Western Month continues with a look at Sergio Corbucci's The Great Silence. The film stars Jean-Louis Trintignant as Silence, a mute gunfighter who squares off against a wild bounty hunter, the appropriately named Loco, played by Klaus Kinski. It's a violent, nihilistic film, and one of many great movies that came out in 1968. We will be spoiling the many endings of The Great Silence, so if you haven't seen it before, please check it out and come back. We will still be here. So, Maitland, when was the first time you saw The Great Silence, and what did you think?
4: I first saw The Great Silence when it came to DVD. I definitely did not see it in a theater, and I don't even remember what DVD I had. It's possible it was bootleg. It's possible that it was a genuine commercial release. It's one of those movies that everybody I knew who cared about Italian Westerns talked about. In a number of different kinds of conversations, one of them being the conversation, of course, about the two Sergios and the fact that Corbucci, though American critics in particular, absolutely treated him as the secondary Sergio, was in his own right an extraordinary European interpreter of the myths of the American West who had a ruthlessness that clearly Leone also had but that Corbucci was just willing to take right off the edge of the earth.
2: Evil, how about yourself?
5: I don't remember when I first saw the movie, but probably it must have been uh, on German television uh, in the 1980s. Uh, And as far as I remember, it was a reasonably uh, good print, so not uh, the notorious uh, pen and scan version that we were treated, for example, with... uh, once upon a time in the West, but it must have been uh, in the 1980s on, on German television. Yeah, and, and later on, uh, I, I had a VHS copy, and then also saw it in uh, in cinemas. Uh, the movie has always been present uh, in uh, continental Europe, and it was it was not just a cult favorite; it was really uh, a part of the popular imagination. It has been a, a great success uh, when it was first released in 1968, uh, um, in Europe and in France especially, also in, in Italy a little bit differently. It also uh, had its audience, uh, but especially in Germany and in France, it was really, really popular, both uh, with, uh, yeah, let's say a, a working class audience, uh, but also with a more uh, intellectual audience, especially a uh, left-wing audience for uh, obvious reasons yeah but it, it uh, never went away actually after its release in in 1968 it was uh, it was present in the popular imagination and then had its several afterlives um, on on uh, television and on vhs long before uh, the uh, switch to digital and I, if i if i remember correctly the first DVD version of the film was also one produced in Germany. yeah, And I guess especially Germany is an important country for the movie, not only for financing reasons and the co-star, or probably the actual star of the movie. Vis-a-vis Trantignon is, of course, uh, Klaus Kinski.
2: I saw this one years ago, I think when the Fantomas disc came out, and it was sold to me as, hey, this Western takes place in the snow. Isn't that cool? There's a little bit more than that to this movie, but I had to say that the first time I watched it, it just did not connect with me at all. I was just like, I don't see what the big deal is. I I really just wasn't getting it. The ending, of course, was pretty shocking, but otherwise, I was like, yeah, I'm just not getting it. Then when I rewatched it years later, I was like, oh. Okay, and then it really hit home. Even though what confused me the first time around was the relationship of the characters. And it's interesting because I don't know why I didn't get that, because the relationship of the characters is so interwoven. It's just everybody seems to know everybody in different capacities, and it's not like there's some stranger who comes to town, because the stranger, Silence in this case, has relationships or at least had a relationship with one of the two major bad guys. And so really it's, he's not really that much of a stranger. He already has a prior history, actually a few times that he's met up with this guy. So it it shouldn't have confused me as much as it did. And then rewatching it for the show, it's just like, okay, yeah, I can see why this is hailed as a classic. And this is definitely one of, for me anyway, one of those major, spaghetti westerns where it's just like oh yeah this should be in the pantheon this makes complete sense
4: and i completely agree that it should be in the pantheon because it, it's a movie whose desolation is so great it's, it's pretty much impossible not to look at the title the great silence as referring to god's utter indifference to man because ultimately that's what this film is about not only is there no person in the town or no person on earth who can help you, but even God has abandoned you. And that is an extraordinarily nihilistic loss of faith vision for what was treated when people first saw it here, by and large, as, well, that's just another spaghetti Western. It's another shoot em up. It's going to be much more violent than American Westerns even at that time when they were becoming more violent than they had been earlier, dared to breach. And they were Westerns by and large, when they were talking about big topics, obviously we're talking about the man against the frontier thing, the conquest of nature, the forward movement of human civilization, and then good men against bad men, which, which was generally defined as men who wanted to create families and towns, and then collections of towns working together for the common good, as opposed to men, and occasionally women, who were purely out for themselves, who didn't care about anybody else. They just wanted what they wanted and were willing to do what it took to get what they wanted. But great silence has much greater implications. It really is, God doesn't care what happens to any of you. And do with that what you will. And clearly different characters in this film do different things. Although there really aren't a lot of characters here that, that you could call people who were really working for the community. A lot of the working for the community was, okay, we, we got to stand together for a second because this guy is a real problem. But there's no greater sense of community in it. And that, I think, is, first of all, extraordinary, extraordinarily European of that period, particularly. I think there was a lot of sense of you cannot put your faith in any organization, any set of social convictions or conventions. You really, really have to look out for yourself.
5: You could read it as um, uh, this um, a nihilistic movie. But on the other hand, it's also a very Catholic movie. Uh, isn't it uh, uh, like so many of the of the great spaghetti westerns yeah so um, another perspective probably could be that there just is no place for god in capitalism because uh, this is another major topic of the film uh, how capitalism constitutes itself uh, and uh, how every revolt uh, against not necessary revolution but every revolt is at least to some extent doomed, uh, and I mean, I mean the great sacrifices of the film the great sacrifice of silence is meaningless, and this is really where you could call the film nihilistic yeah, it's it's meaningless, uh, it does not uh, save those who are persecuted yeah, and who are discriminated against yeah, and if you keep in mind uh, that the outlaws, they are not uh, bad guys, they are not bad people they steal just because they are hungry, uh, as it is said uh, in the very beginning of the movie, again the the bounty hunters they don't break the law. Yeah, the, everybody sticks to the law. Silence tries to stick to the law. Doesn't kill uh, anybody if he's not uh, provoked and if he's acting in in uh, self defense. Uh, and and the, the the bounty hunters and Kinski Loco too. Yeah, they uh, stick to the law. Wanted dead or alive.
2: One of our major characters is a sheriff, and that he is very concerned about, how was this person killed? Did they pull their gun first? Like you said, wanted dead or alive. Well, I have a feeling that everybody that you encounter is not going to be alive when he talks to, to Loco or to Guerrero, the Klaus Kinski character. I love this Sheriff Gordon Burnett character played by Frank Wolf. And I mostly knew Wolf through him being kind of the patriarch in Once Upon a Time in the West. He and his whole redheaded family that get murdered by Frank and his boys. Here he is much less staid. He's got a sense of humor about him, but at the same time, don't mess with this guy. I really like this character and that he's sent by the governor to be more of a figurehead type sheriff is what I'm getting. And there's this whole idea of the political implications of these bandits being outside of the town. And to your point, yeah, the bandits are just hungry and they're looking for food. And I like that. There's this kind of, um, black and white version of, of the, uh, the line bread and butter. Like at one point, loco, murders one of these bandits who goes to uh, visit his mother, and he says, you know, this is our bread and butter. And then later on in the film, when um, uh, the sheriff is about to ride out with Loco to take him to a prison, he's just like, yeah, you need to load up this wagon with bread and butter and all this other food to – allow the bandits to eat and then everything will be taken care of. And he has this great relationship with the bandits, even after they steal his horse to eat his horse. He still is very nice to them when he comes back through and he's just like, Hey, this time I don't have a frozen gun, but he doesn't shoot anybody. He's just there to tell them there's going to be some food down there. You better get going and, and get some of that before, you know, we offer you amnesty, which I thought was pretty great. And I kept wondering like, what do these people represent? And I was just like, I kept thinking of like draft dodgers or something, just people who have gone to the north, gone up to the mountains and they're, uh, you know, waiting for amnesty in order to come back to the community. But I'm sure that I'm over reading that one because this is 68. So I'm not sure how many people were, you know, running away from the draft at this time, or maybe there were tons.
5: Frank Wolf is just wonderful. In the film, and probably this is the one moment when Loco uh, indeed breaks the law. Yeah, But uh, still, he doesn't shoot him uh, in, a, in a conventional, in an ordinary fashion. And probably the sheriff, Frank Wolf, he's the, probably really the one and only genuinely humane character in the film. We yeah, not driven by revenge or uh, being uh, driven to icy behavior. But on the other hand, he's completely ineffectual. Uh, yeah, he's completely ineffective and he's naive. Uh, he's, very, he's very, very naive. And he's also kind of goofy in that um, uh, regard. He also sticks out a little bit from a film that does not dwell so much on humor. Uh, uh, in contrast to lots of other uh, 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 Corbucci-directed films where there's a strong uh, strong sense of humor and, and parody and grotesque. In, in that regard, the Frank Wolf character, the sheriff, connects uh, uh, to other films, to other movies like Corbucci. Uh, but as he... he Meets uh, such a a horrible fate uh, early on uh, in the film. Uh, I think this is really characteristic uh, for the strategy of the Great Silence as a as a whole.
4: I think also its strategy as a whole is hard to see outside the context of the time when yeah. idealism was something that was. It is simultaneously praised and ridiculed as ineffectual because to be an idealist meant that you weren't dealing with the realities of the world, with the fact that the world's not fair and it's never going to consistently reward people who are always trying to, to do the right thing. And yet there still was a sense that there were a lot of pockets of people, of movements, both political and social, that were absolutely driven by the idea that maybe the world could be a better place. And maybe this fundamental brutishness of human nature, so often concealed by the veneer of civilization, actually isn't true. Maybe we aren't all really the cavemen. And that's something that you you see being explored, certainly in the 19th century in, in fiction, that maybe the better angels of our nature actually are stronger than the devils of our nature that pull us back down into being selfish and greedy and cruel and thoughtless. And that, I think, is a real tension in this movie, because clearly silence, in one way, does represent the better angels. But in another way, of course, he doesn't. He's a product of a time and a place where the better angels have taken a vacation someplace, and there is absolutely no upside in trying to be the one just man. A just man who is completely driven, ultimately, by a form of wide-ranging vengeance because of the traumatic childhood that made him the man who won't even deign to talk. He's completely rejected even that fundamental way of communicating with other people because he's clearly so alienated and so appalled by both what people do and what people say.
2: You look at something like the good, the bad, and the ugly, or for a few dollars more, and you're talking about bounty hunters, and the bounty hunters are the ones that are the heroes of the film. And in this, there is this moral ambiguity, because you're right, they are doing their job. They are supposed to be the ones that go after these criminals, and in this one they're really, they're kind of the bad guys. Like, Klaus Kinski is Toggero tigre- slash Loco. He is definitely one of the villains, but he is just following the letter of the law. And he is 100% supported by the Henry Pollicutt character who's – at first I thought he was the boss of the town, the town boss. But then I realized, oh, no, no. He's the justice of the peace. He's the banker. So he is the power behind the town. He's the boss in that way. But he's not like doing it through brute force. He's doing it through his financial influence and through his legal influence. And it's just – Yeah, just talk about like being set up to lose. It's like you've got the law and commerce are imbued in this one character, and he is pulling all the strings. And so as soon as the sheriff comes to town, he's just like, "Well, of course you know who I am. You know, I'm I'm basically the power behind the throne here. So you really need to treat me right." And he is the one who was part of the band that ended up. Slashing, uh, Silence's throat to keep him quiet after they murdered his mother and father. And it was he and a bunch of bounty hunters that were after the father and then managed to accidentally, on purpose, maybe accidentally murder Silence's mother as well. And he's been this common thread through all of Silence's life. And so it's kind of this, unstoppable force meeting an immovable object as the these two characters come together silence gets his revenge much earlier in the film it's it's maybe 20 minutes before the end of the film 15 minutes and really it's loco who is the one who is the big bad at the end so it's like you know you generally think of the boss and the mini boss or the the minions But really, it's Loco is the one that he needs to take care of at the end of the film and ultimately doesn't.
4: Yeah, And that is a spectacularly grim ending. I mean, there's no level on which the ending of of this film is not grim. It absolutely denies every single level on which you could come away feeling that, okay, a lot of very bad things went unpunished, but at least this bad thing was punished by a righteous person but it's just not there it's a movie that denies you on every single level which i think is one of the reasons that it is so memorable especially for people who saw it with no preparation and went in thinking okay by now i know the ground rules of italian westerns and i i do know that they are exceptionally violent and that good people die people who didn't deserve to have terrible things happen to them had terrible things happen to them But in the end, at least there was some sense that the entire wave of evil hadn't crashed over every person, every place and everything in the film. The Great Silence doesn't give you one moment of the feeling that anything at least has been resolved in a good way. The wave really did wash over, drown everyone and sweep everything out to that sea of snow. And that is a phenomenal piece of confidence that there would actually be audiences who wouldn't walk out of that movie saying, Jesus Christ, that is the worst movie I've ever seen. I hated it. Everybody died, and and half of them didn't deserve to. It really did go against the kind of satisfaction that obviously people expected from older American Westerns in which you absolutely came away feeling as though, like, okay, it may have been a terrible fight and people may have paid with their lives, but ultimately the better angels of our nature prevailed. But the bleakness of The Great Silence is extraordinary, even among a group of films that are known for their bleakness and for their dim view of human nature.
5: The original ending, uh, the unhappy ending is the only... True ending. Usually, I'm a big defender uh, of happy endings uh, in, in classical Hollywood, in Cirque, even up to Schindler's List. Yeah, because the happy ending, or the, sometimes. And manages uh, to make the true dialectical point yeah, and point uh, out uh, the absurdities of life and the role chance uh, plays uh, in life. Uh, but I would not make that argument for The Great Silence uh, because the whole point of the movie is uh, to say sacrifice is meaningless. Uh, silence as sacrifice is meaningless. It serves no purpose. Uh, it is uh, without any sense. The Great Silence, for for me, it is uh, almost a perfect movie. I wouldn't change uh, a thing. Even if it is an imperfect movie, uh, (laughs) but it works perfectly, uh, the only thing I would change is the title card at the end, uh, because it it then again tries to re-inscribe meaning uh, to what has proven meaningless. This is a pity that this title card at the end exists, which points out to progress uh, in history. Yeah, because this is not what the film has shown us uh, before in uh, 90 extremely bleak and nihilistic minutes.
2: The title card at the end is just like, well, this changed public sentiment against the bounty hunters. So rules change, laws change. And it's just like, really, that's what you're going to give me? It's kind of a pat on the hand, kind of a there, there, you know, don't worry about it. Everything's going to change for the better. And it's like. I really don't think so. I think even when the laws change that there's going to be people like Loco out there just looking for excuses and looking for legal ways to murder people. I mean, really, at the end of the day, I think he really gets off on murdering people. And he found that this is a way that he can make a living doing that. Well, it's this for the army. But, yeah, I I'm, I really like killing people and this is kind of what i'm good at it's really the only thing i'm good at kind of like Trenton Ye is silence i mean he's really good at killing but more than that he's really good at shooting the thumbs off of people so they can't use guns again and i love that that that's his way of disarming people that he's got this talk about another corbucci film which is django right that's one of like the big films for him. And you've got this whole idea of like the, okay, he's dragging around the coffin and he's got the machine gun in the coffin. And so he's got these kind of superhero trappings, you know, and with uh, silence, you've got him not being able to speak. You've got this Mauser that he carries around, which is fantastic. I, I was like, wow, that seems really anachronistic only to find out that they were around like a year before the film actually takes place. So I was like, oh, that's cool that he's got this, automatic weapon and that he can shoot the thumbs off of people at so much distance. I love the very first time we see silence and that he goes up against a group of these bounty killers and he won't kill the one guy. When the bandits come out of the, the you know, the bandits are there and they come down out of the Hills and stuff. And one of the bandits kills one of the bounty killers and silence is really kind of pissed off. Cause it's like, no, I already disarmed him. He will never use a pistol the rest of his life. But, of course, he can't say any of that stuff. He just does all of that in a look, a very disapproving look. And, my God, if you're going to have one guy who can't speak in a film, Trenton Ye in the way that he uses his face, it is fantastic. I think he does such a good job. Well, there's no question but that he does.
4: Although, I actually remember having a reaction to the shooting off the thumbs that – made me think of the people who advocate castrating rapists. Because, hey, you castrate them, they can't rape again. But in fact, as people have documented, well, no, it just means they can't use their sexual organs to rape. So in fact, you haven't really solved the problem. And so I looked at the shooting off of the thumbs and thought, well, clearly, that's going to make it very difficult to handle any kind of gun. And yet, where there's a will, there is generally a way. Now, perhaps that particular guy is not going to be the guy who's smart enough to figure out a way. On the other hand, if you're driven enough, the odds are you will figure out a way to use a gun, even if your thumbs have been shot off. And I I was trying to think of how to put that into the larger context of the film's philosophy. And I really wonder whether that was thought through
2: thoroughly. You look at Polycut, who doesn't have his thumbs because he met up with Silence before, and he's still in charge of everything, and he just hires guns to do what he wants to do so really yeah he isn't disarmed because he now has enough money where he can say okay loco come on into town and you know take care of these guys and he's the one who's handing over that money in front of the sheriff i love that they're doing this all so above board that there's that scene of them like okay well here's this and here's this and here's the bodies outside and it's only that the one body is missing because it was buried by the guy's wife that causes the sheriff to say like no no we're not going to do this but yet it comes to nothing because at the end of the day once he finds out that the body was buried he goes back in and he's like okay loco here's your money and that's it
5: i mean that's interesting what you're saying about the shooting off of the thumbs and symbolic castration because we, we connect that to the basic uh, critical discourse uh, of the film, I mean, uh, it is a film about killing, um, but it is uh, not a film about killing uh, in the tradition of uh, the classical Hollywood western, which is so much invested with uh, with the idea of regeneration through violence, as uh, the cultural theorist uh, Richard Slotkin called it once and uh, once again. Uh, it is a. I mean, the, the point of the film uh, is capitalism kills. Yeah, that is, uh, that is the main point. And then is, um, also silence is to a certain extent ineffective. Yeah, he's not as ineffective as the sheriff, but also his violence is not regenerative yeah, because it does not uh, achieve anything in the end. Because against the agents of, of capital, uh, that is the bounty hunters and, and polycut, of course, he's powerless. Um, and I think in this discourse on, uh, on the ideology of violence, uh, the film is much closer to uh, Leone's uh, Once Upon a Time in the West than the, the dollar films. Even uh, if The Great Silence obviously uh, lacks the optimism of Once Upon a Time in the West, with the great uh, crane shot at the end of the film, where it is all about regeneration, yeah, and where it is all about the birth of a nation, and where it is all about coming together building something. But there's nothing built uh, in in the great silence. There's just destruction and death.
2: Well, let's talk about love. We've got the relationship of Pauline Middleton, the Vanetta McGee character. It's her husband that ends up being murdered, and she is put into that position of the husband being murdered because of Palakot wanting her to become his mistress and just doing all of these things, all of this machinations in order to try to get her to be his mistress. And she throws him over and eventually goes with silence and they're dead at the end of the film. The other love relationship that I see starting to bloom is with the sheriff and the saloon girl, Regina or saloon girl, aka prostitute. And it's interesting too that the only good people in the town or the only real citizens of the town at this point seem to be prostitutes because the. That's it, you know. That just like it's the saloon slash hotel. That's where pretty much everything takes place, other than the the sheriff's office, with where he takes uh, Loco at one point. But really, it's so much of this takes place in that. Saloon slash hotel that, you know, even at the end of it, when you have all of the townspeople that have been captured or the bandits, quote unquote, that have been captured, that they're all strung up inside of that saloon. And it's just that image that that pan around the room to see all those people with their arms up and and uh tied up and everything such a striking image and just reminds me of so many times that we've had hostage situations that have gone completely tits up and just like it is about to in the film it's just a a really really horrific especially when that massacre takes place one that is completely inevitable
4: i mean i think from the first time the first time you see that film that you see those tied up hostages You know in your gut, however much you might hope that it not turn out as badly as it does, you know that that's how badly it's going to turn out. Because as a film, yeah, great silence is merciless. So by the time you get there, it's become very clear to you that there is no rescue, that the entire world is the world of this town and the hierarchy that rules this town. Clearly, silence is not the Lone Ranger at his best, he could never be the Lone Ranger because he doesn't live in Lone Ranger territory. He lives in a world that is pretty undoubtedly closer to what the real world of the frontier was like than the classic Hollywood Western version. Both are exaggerations. One exaggerates the good, the other exaggerates the bad. But it took very tough people to make that westward trip. And the people who were not really tough often were the people who died because it was not the civilization from which they came, even if they came from the lowest rungs of that civilization and felt the the oppression of it in the most profound way. And at least some of them wanted to do better rather than just go someplace where they could be the oppressors instead of the oppressed. That's what makes Italian Westerns generally except for some of the comedic ones. And even the comedic ones are generally pretty grim, except for the flat-out farces. They are incredibly potent because they are reflections of a darkness that American Westerns, by and large, and those were the Westerns on, on which I think most of us grew up because they were the ones that were on TV when we were kids. Italian westerns, first of all, when I was really young, they basically hadn't been made yet. The very early precursors had, but not what we would call, I think, the prime period of Italian westerns when they truly became reflections of political inequities and social inequities. So they weren't there for me to watch as a kid. I was seeing Lone Ranger movies. And that was a very different pop cultural depiction. To be old enough when many of these movies were new to see them, was absolutely in line with the way the times had changed clearly the 60s and the 70s in america and in europe were both times of a great deal of social change to see movies that reflected it by using american history was uh, very very potent it's
5: uh, it's interesting what you said uh, about the sexual politics uh, the gender politics also the the racial politics of um, Of the film, because uh, on the one hand yeah uh, certainly we have the the old stereotype, the old cliche of the saint and the war yeah on the on the one hand that is so also um, so characteristic for the spaghetti western but it's uh it's more complex on the other hand yeah it's much more complex on the other hand uh, i mean uh, uh, we have uh, an African-American actress. Yeah, we have a black actress as uh, the love interest uh, of silence, the wonderful Ronetta McGee, that later turned up, uh, well, it's not the most politically correct movie nowadays, but in the Eiger Sanction with and, uh, and by Clint Eastwood. But she's also in the, in the really great uh, and very, very underrated uh, Shaft in Africa, the third installment of the, of the original Shaft movies and she's really uh, she's a wonderful presence in the film in this uh, interracial romance developing without a chance yeah, and against all odds yeah, and of course trenton is also uh, is important uh, in that instance uh, because he's not the lone ranger definitely not uh, and he's also not the man without uh, without a name again uh, to a certain level he goes back uh, to the tradition of the western and also uh, the hollywood western yeah uh, the strong and silent type like uh, gary cooper in wayne and in randolph scott of course uh, randy, randy scott uh, in the bud Burtiger films yeah who is almost mute and and, and catatonic but not uh, biologically yeah you have that uh, have that tradition uh, but then um, uh, on the other hand trentignan is uh, I mean he's so uh, un macho uh, yeah he's a very slender man he's a he's a careful man uh, he's a small man yeah uh, he's not a hot body yeah so the the movie would not have worked uh, with Clint Eastwood in uh, In the starring role, yeah, and this is where uh, the great silence is also very different from Django, yeah where uh, Franco Nero was basically a, a Clint Eastwood stand in yeah and clint eastwood uh, look alike who uh, definitely put his own uh, uh, print uh, on the role, uh, not with understanding yeah but uh, basically he um, stepped in for Eastwood. Uh, and Eastwood would not have fitted uh, the role of silence due to his vulnerability, yeah that uh, silence is vulnerable. This is key to the film yeah? after all he gets uh, he gets shot in the end massacred uh,
2: in the end. When he keeps getting shot, he's, he's shot so many times. Like he's shot even in the first interaction that he has with Loco. It's like, you know, he's, he's like, okay, yeah, go ahead, try to pick up the pistol. And then it, he gets shot. And that's like what leads to Vanessa McGee really kind of that, that relationship that they have. But yeah, he's, he's definitely so far from the, in spaghetti westerns, you almost always have that point where. The hero gets beat up, but it's like not only does he get beat up, but he gets shot before that, and then he gets shot many times after that.
5: For a fistful of dollars, again, it was copied or it was lifted right out of ujimbo, where also Mifune takes a severe beating, and this beating is restaged in in a Fistful of Dollars, but again, it is Eastwood's hard body that is tortured, and just for the sake of coming out of the ashes like phoenix. That's what, what I would say is the ideological point in uh, in fistful yeah uh, to have uh, the rebirth and then it is basically if you remember uh, the showdown in fistful of Dallas with the armor yeah he has, his body is literally armored uh, and uh, he can't be hurt any longer and I mean uh, and what do we see in the showdown it's not really a showdown in the massacre at the end of of great silence yeah we see the body uh, perforated split open and then uh, dying bleeding out uh, in the snow it's extremely violent for its time blood uh, that is gushing and that is uh, that is visible on
2: screen i don't think it's any coincidence too that his right hand is hurt and then his left hand gets shot so he's bleeding from both hands i mean to me i'm just like okay stigmata that's what i'm seeing with this and that he's like the great sacrifice rather than the great silence This was 68, and I've always talked about 68, super political, yada, yada, and I can definitely see this being... A very, very political film. And I've read that um, this was kind of a reflection of Che Guevara's assassination in what, 67 and Malcolm X in 65. And ironically, this is coming out in 68, which is like the year of assassinations between RFK and Martin Luther King Jr. So it's like, it's right there with the zeitgeist of the politics of the time.
4: And again, of course, that's a tremendously American thing because America, as an American, I think it took me longer to realize how appalling that iconography of assassination in American history is. And I think it's one of the reasons that Italian Westerns in general, even ones that weren't dealing with it so directly, seemed very powerful to me because they recognized that assassination isn't unusual. You don't want it to be business as usual. And yet it is a tool that, is incredibly potent, incredibly powerful, and often very effective. And, you know, if you can take out the voices who are galvanizing people to think that they can challenge the status quo in any way, whether it's financially or socially or in terms of, of sexual matters, whether it's discrimination against women purely because they're women or discrimination against people who are not heterosexual, however, whatever sexuality they define themselves as all of that an easy way of dealing with it is just to kill the people who are in the way and the dialogue about america and guns is a long one and one that clearly we're not coming out on top of in any way as a nation we are we are the gun loving nation of the world i mean i live in new york city which is the not gun loving center of the world but all i have to do is go across the river to new jersey and the difference is is dramatic and palpable. And as the entire world, I'm sure, knows right now, America fighting about the right to to carry arms, open carry in cities, is just an insanity. You know, open carrying in towns in the Old West was one thing. There were a lot of things that might make it useful for you to have a gun, not just bad people, but all kinds of things. The idea that people should be open carrying in the fricking supermarket is a particular American form of crazy that is by a significant number of Americans being pushed back against in a really aggressive way. I don't particularly want to get into a huge political conversation about guns, but it's almost impossible not to because every time you see statements from a broad range of politicians who support deregulating guns in every way possible. Part of what I want to say to a lot of them is, you didn't grow up in the 60s. You did not grow up in in that particular decade of assassination that I think helped put a lot of people who hadn't thought a lot about gun control on the path of really thinking about it. Because yes, there will always be people who want to kill other people. But deregulating firearms in a way that makes it easy for almost anybody to have one does not help matters at all. And so when you look at a Western like Silence, and almost any Western, but particularly Italian Westerns, and Silence, I think, really comes out at the top of it. You see why, yeah, every single person having at least one gun, if not more, turns conversations into gunfights
5: over here in old europe we have our own perspective on the on the discourse but i mean uh, uh, after all a great silence he's using a german gun tellingly he's using a semi-automatic gun so he, he's no longer stepped in the tradition of uh, the manly duel uh, so to speak which of course has never existed and is, is a construction but uh, uh, the whole idea of the uh, of God creating man and then cult making them equal, this is no longer the discourse of the great silence yeah is is already pointing forward to uh, the movement of history, uh, to mass violence uh, and to the industrialized violence that will happen uh, only a few years later uh, from the the diegetic time of of the film. This is an idea that obviously Peckinpah also got from the Spaghetti Western and then blew up to operatic dimensions uh, a year later, actually, in, in his masterpiece, The Wild Bunch. I mean, and and talking about times, as I guess is always the case with the great masterpieces uh, in cinema, but generally in art, a lot of things come together in the great silent. A certain point in history, it is the right film uh, at the right time. It is uh, the right cast. Uh, There's Trentignan uh, uh, as this uh, mute, silent stranger. It's wonderful. Uh, Bonetta Maggi. This is, uh, of course, Klaus Kinski. Uh, this extremely cruel but also very intelligent uh, killer uh, bounty hunter that never breaks the law and it is uh, certainly also the director Sergio Corbucci because obviously uh, it is a western uh, so it is concerned uh, with America (laughs) so to speak Uh, but it is also I mean it is a European film yeah and it is also very much a product of European 60s 60s European cinema and 60s European politics especially in France, in Germany, and, and Italy. So uh, all over the Western world, yeah, the 60s were a, a period of crisis and tumult. And then it is interestingly the year of 68, where a lot of this uh, crisis uh, not starts, definitely, uh, but uh, boils up and uh, really comes to a point of eruption yeah, with the civil rights movement and strikes and student protests um, and this is all uh, happening uh, uh, not only in the US but also in uh, in Europe. This climate is to be taken into consideration, yeah, when we talk about uh, the Great Silence as a product of its time, both uh, uh, in production, but also in reception then. Uh, as I said, uh, it was a great success uh, all over continental Europe. Yeah, it, was not a cult, it was a cult movie on the one hand yeah, for uh, intelligentsia and cinephile audience, but it was also a popular success, yeah, like so many of the, of the spaghetti westerns. Yeah, it was viewed by many people and enjoyed also as a genre film, <laughs> uh, uh, even a very twisted one by a mass audience.
2: We were talking about Trenton Ye earlier, and for me, one of his most striking roles is not when he is, you know, you're saying he's not a hard body and he's not a hard body in Z where he's got those big glasses. And he's just kind of that guy on the periphery looking at everything and kind of putting the pieces together. And Z is the very next year, 69. And that's also based on real things that were going on. I think it was the 63 Lembrakis was uh assassinated in Greece. So it's just like, this is the age of assassins, and and it, it was so awful that it was, and you're right. For me, the last person I prominently remember being assassinated was, and it wasn't even a, a successful assassination, it was when Reagan was shot. And then you think about that, that was 1981 that he got shot, and that poor James Brady got shot as well, and it took – 12 years until the Brady Bill was passed by two presidents later. You know, it wasn't even Reagan who got shot. It ended up being Clinton, you know, all these years later that passed the Brady Bill. And that's probably the last significant gun legislation that we had and probably has been completely dismantled by this time.
4: Well, if not dismantled, certainly severely undermined, because, of course, this is the big American problem. It's the federal law, state law, local law problem that makes it extremely difficult to truly pass useful legislation that will apply everywhere because it won't it just won't and again that's something we're seeing played out right now relentlessly there is no getting away from it the idea that anybody thinks that you want to be able to walk onto the floor of the senate with a weapon is unbelievable to me Well, you never know
2: where there's going to be a rattlesnake, right?
4: Exactly, exactly. Oh, well, under under Speaker Pelosi's podium, obviously, there are clearly rattlesnakes there. So, yeah, you better have your gun with you. It's an astonishing attitude. And clearly, I I find it mind-bogglingly horrifying. And I'm I'm somebody who was aware during the 60s. I was very young, but I was not so young that I wasn't aware of the, the virulence of the social upheaving in America, not virulence on the part of the upheavers, although they were certainly very passionate, but the incredible toxic reaction to it from people who wanted to keep the status quo. And of course, those people are making their voices heard loudly and clearly now, pushing back to try and move backwards a lot of the progress that America made in the 60s, basically on rights fronts, the rights of women, the rights of people of color, the rights of people of various sexualities, to at the very least just to be left the hell alone and not persecuted simply for being the people they are. There was a point at which it seemed as though it was getting to a a nice level where people who thought hateful things at least didn't say them in public, and there were restraints on them using those prejudices to hold other people back. That's going away in in a way that I think a lot of us find very disturbing. That those those battles are being refought with equal vigor. It's not just a small group of people who are saying, oh, everything was better in the old days. Before we gave all those people all those rights. As though you get to give other people rights. I suppose the fact that the conversation is not happening behind closed doors is about the only good thing you can take from it it's being played out in a very public way but it's a very disturbing set of conversations that are being had, had in america today
5: which puts uh, european filmmakers uh, audiences uh, people in general but as we're talking about film yeah all filmmakers in a in a tight spot yeah when engaging with a form or a genre such as the western yeah, on the one hand uh, being interested in it probably also um Loving it, <laughs> uh, but then also with a kind of non-understanding yeah, of this, especially this cult of, of violence. And then, and then I think it's very interesting again, uh, The Great Silence is, is not uh, a film about the duel. Yeah? It is really a film about execution uh, and massacre. Uh, and and it, uh, I have not seen that uh, in, uh, in the classical uh, Hollywood western. Yeah, but later on, later, it came with with full force. Yeah, post sixty nine and post code Hollywood. Yeah, when we really have that uh, happening in the early in the early seventies, also I think Soldier Blue is is late nineteen sixty. Yeah, sixty nine. Yeah, then it then it's happening. But it, it seems uh, like uh, like uh, the fuse. Yeah, the fuse uh, was lighted by the Italians in their take in their transatlantic take on the Western, um, and then uh, this. Fuse, uh, yeah, was, was picked up and brought to other extremes uh, in New Hollywood cinema. When you had uh, people engaging with their own, so to speak, with their own history, with their own culture, uh, and with their own obsession with violence and gun culture. Yeah,
2: definitely. This is the same year as The lai Massacre. These are happening right now in 68 when this comes out. Talk about a movie like Soldier Blue. It was a
4: film that was reviled by most, I think I can safely say, American critics precisely because it presented a view of American behavior and firearms within a historical context, one in which guns were widely accepted. Everybody had guns. It wasn't kind of an outlaw thing. And there was a real horror at it in the same way that there was a real horror at Little Big Man. And certainly a real horror at European Westerns, multiplied by the fact that, oh, and it's these Europeans now choosing to make this criticism of America's cultural history and the way in which the history of the West had been whitewashed, for want of a better word, in most mainstream contexts. And not just, not just movies, television shows. TV westerns were a staple of a generation, probably two generations, of kids watching TV. And you were not seeing Western settlers, Western lawmen as being bad guys. Even the families who were just looking for a better opportunity were generally looking for it at the expense of indigenous people. Because those people were there and they were kind of in the way. And so, yes, some people were able to broker at least a relatively decent relationship with them. A lot of people didn't. And that part of American history is extremely, was extremely controversial then. And frankly, is now going back to being extremely controversial because the whole move in America to go back to not seeing the white Europeans who came to America as the bad guys. And of course, no group of people are always all the bad guys. And they are never always all the good guys. But there is a complexity that I think in a lot of ways, America as a nation doesn't like. America as a nation would really like cut and dried answers where you can pick your side and feel good about it rather than having to pick your side. But then look at the ways in which your side is doing things that you wouldn't approve if the other side that's not your side were doing them and again i think right now we are seeing america in the throes of an incredible pick your side and get out your gun and stand on it prepared to protect your border which really isn't the way democracy is supposed to work i mean that that is the great promise of democracy is that you can hold opposing opinions and yet you can find common ground on various issues platforms and purposes so that you can work together I'm looking at politics right now, it's a dog fight. You just throw two two dogs in a pit, and you know, one dog walks out that's That's not really encouraging, and it is a great reason to look at Italian Westerns and see the fact that yeah they they were engaging with this issue very directly and and very clearly within the context of American history which, of course, wasn't American history in the beginning. It was European history. It was Europeans who came to America. But it makes a a movie like The Great Silence, for example, I think very, very powerful in today's America.
2: Yeah, I always appreciate the spaghetti westerns for the way that we are seeing ourselves reflected back at us. The whole idea of how is America or was America being perceived both historically and at that time and getting that, I can't say it's a fun house mirror reflection because a lot of times it was very accurate what that reflection was. So I always appreciated that or, or seeing things like our culture being reflected back in Japanese films as well was very fascinating. So seeing this, it was just like, Oh, okay, this is how we're being perceived. Or at least that's my interpretation. It's just like, wow, this is, this is pretty good. And then, yeah, you're right. Evo, as far as like, Kinski being in here, the gun being German. I mean, this is such a European film as well. And next week, we're going to talk about The Big Gundown, which has this real prominent German theme as well, to the point where Morricone is using for Elise on the soundtrack. And so there's that, you know, how is Germany being perceived by other Europeans or by Americans or how were they historically part of America or not is very, very interesting to always look at the stories behind these and, and see how politics of the day really affect these films.
4: That's one of the reasons that you can talk about Westerns as a mythic genre, because they do always reflect the myths that are pervasive at the time they're made. And there are always filmmakers who are willing to go against the myths to Demystify them as it were, but the American West at this point, clearly it's, it's a period in history. It happened. There are records from the time it happened that you can look at and you can see in very personal detail how particular people did particular things and how they lived their lives. But the West itself is the great American myth of a historical fact. And that's why the perception of the West in America can change so dramatically and also why the perception of the West, if you're not American, can be entirely different because you didn't grow up within that mythology. Even if you did grow up seeing American Westerns and seeing the way in which the West was depicted then, you also come from a completely different, well, not completely different because Americans, of course, were Europeans originally, but from a culture in which the West is not perceived in the exact same way. The American West is not perceived in the exact same way because you have a different stake in it.
2: I mentioned uh, Morricone a few minutes ago and the soundtrack for this is so good. I would say this is one of Morricone's best. And it also, it really gives the film such a, an interesting feel. There are moments in the film that are scored like they're a horror film uh, I want to say there's a moment with like a, an organ going on where I'm just like, this is really creepy. And it's so not. Never in this film do we get the rousing fistful of dollars, like we're riding out kind of thing. It is so sedate and so creepy at times. And, and the music, especially when Loco is coming to town after he goes and gets his whole band of bounty hunters, bounty killers. It is just, that's the moment that I think we get closest to a rousing score is when he is driving across uh, the, the snowy plains. And again, this idea of using the snow as like this stark contrast. I mean, there, of course there have been Westerns that have been shot in the snow, but this one, it's, it's just amazing. Like, I, I also, I go back to, um, Andre Dutoth's uh, Nightfall, which was a film noir that was shot in the snow. And just that it's so brightly lit, but yet there are so many dark things that are going on in the world. And this is very much that same idea of like, everything's bright. Everything's great. You know, you go out in the streets and it's all white all over the place, though starting to get really mixed in with the mud, but. You know, the, under broad daylight and blue skies, all of this nefarious stuff is happening. On the one hand, snow is
4: beautifully bright and shiny and glittering, but it's also blinding and it's also concealing. And I think that that's something that you see in this movie. That blizzard is literally blinding; it's snow blindness. You completely lose track of everything you're seeing, and it's that's clearly both literal and metaphorical, but also that notion of being blinded by the light is interesting because light is generally used as a metaphor for, oh, I I can see clearly now. And yet the snow prevents any kind of seeing clearly, both literally, if you're going through a snowstorm, you can't tell whether the town is a mile ahead or whether it's 50 miles ahead because you can't see. But also because of the willful blindness of the characters in both this film and in so many Italian Westerns. Willful blindness is a coping mechanism. It's a way of dealing with the fact that you recognize that there are, at the very least, iniquities and at the very worst, atrocities that are part of of your society that you're trying, by and large, to cover over with the veneer of civilization.
5: Of course you could say that the, the film is set in the snow just because uh, good old Corpucci uh, wanted to go skiing. <laughs> this is kind of the, the production context uh, of, uh, of the film. Uh, but, uh, I mean, uh, it also very much fits, uh, of course, uh, to the iciness of, um, of the narrative. And also, uh, Corpucci makes something out of it uh, aesthetically, definitely, definitely. I mean, as uh, so much, uh, at least of the better uh, productions of uh, popular Italian cinema and genre cinema is about seeing in Leone, but also in, in uh, Dario Argento, of course, Maitland, know the thing about, too <laughs> about the, the discourse of being in these movies. I think that this is also important for the great silence because um, you know, the snow is reflecting the light constantly uh, and it's just like uh, as we as viewers, we are constantly sliding along the surface of images. Uh, yeah, we have never, uh, never a clear sight. There's also such an emphasis on glass and looks uh, through glasses uh, that is frozen. We are constantly moving on the surface and we cannot really get through through the characters. And I think this also contributes to the to the iciness, you know, the mood of iciness in the film. Yeah, that is on the one hand is such a heated film you know, with the biggest of emotions, yeah, and the harshest of violence. But at the same time, yeah, it is also a film that distances us uh, to a, a certain extent from the action, from, from what is going on. And I think that's uh, significant
2: you know, you think about for a few dollars more and you think about the flashback structure that's in there. And in this film, flashbacks are very important as well and i want to say i can't remember what triggers the second flashback but for sure the first flashback is very much associated with flames so what you're talking about with the iciness going on and then it's the flame that seems to trigger silence to think about when his father was killed and when his throat was slashed so it's it, i completely agree with that and especially you were talking about the reflections and my god that last shot of Kinski, how it's it's his close-up, but it's ref- a reflection through the glass, looking into that saloon and being able to see him and the dead bodies inside at the same time. I love that shot. I think it's just absolutely gorgeous. And kind of going back to the idea of the automatic weapon that uh, Silence has, for me, one of the biggest gut punches isn't even vanetta mcgee getting shot it isn't silence being shot it's that Kinski goes over and takes that mauser and rides off with it it's like now it's like now i have a machine gun ho 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 it's like now he's got this mauser and he's going to be even worse than he was before because now he's got this new cool weapon automatic weapon that he can do even more damage with I mean, talk about emasculation, it's like taking the your opponent's sword. You know, there's <laughs> it's really just like, okay, yeah, not only did I murder you, but I'm gonna take your really cool weapon too. And do really bad things with it. Yeah, oh yeah. You know he is.
5: It's also an interesting inversion. Of the old yojimbo uh, and uh, fistful trope where the antagonist the special weapon that has to be defeated but then it's really uh, turned around yeah and the, the, the antagonist uh, gets uh, the special weapon from the protagonist yeah and is even stronger and nothing uh, seemingly can stop him
2: he never gets a shot off against Kinski, if memory serves i don't think he ever even shoots his gun
5: and he's so intelligent loco is so intelligent he, he won't get in a duel with uh, with silence because he knows he's faster he knows that he will have his moment to his cunning behavior and to to his intelligence uh, he will be triumphant in the end and this does not have to rely on a personal uh, confrontation and the outmoded uh, duel
2: kinski ends up shooting silence or loco i should say. Or Tigrero, if you're going by the audio, which is interesting that it's Tigrero in the audio. So Little Tiger, but then it's Loco in the subtitles or in the English dubbed version. He fits both. He is a Little Tiger and he's crazy. So both of those work pretty well. I don't, I, I know he sh- ends up shooting Silence, I think twice, but it isn't until Silence is right hand and left hand have both been taken care of his right hand taken care of by i want to say mario brega and then his left hand being taken care of by one of the other bounty killers from the saloon who shoots out from a window and so really it's it, it's almost like loco is doing a mercy killing at that point and just putting him down completely
5: yeah and this is also about the catholic imagery comes full circle because when the two lovers yeah, when they fall down, their bodies form a cross again. Yeah, oh. This is again yeah, uh, the ultimate sacrifice, but meaningless uh, in, in contrast uh, to, to uh, Corbucci's Catholicism.
2: We should talk a little bit about these alternate endings too. And there's the, there's two alternate endings. And I think one was on the Fantomas disc. And then eventually film movement put it out and found another version of the ending. Uh, the Fantomas didn't have audio. And then this one does have audio. Plus it's got this secondary ending. So the secondary ending is the vague ending, which is we see silence getting shot and then rather than i don't know if we see vanetta mcgee get killed but i know for sure that we don't see the massacre and it's basically like we cut to kinski and these two guys walk out of the bar freeze and then Finay on the screen and that's it so we don't get that massacre scene and it's super super vague but the first one the first alternate ending is the happy ending, or as happy as you can get in this movie, which kind of goes back to, again, Fistful of Dollars. Rather than him having a uh, hidden armor on his chest, this time Silence has hidden armor on his hand? Like, out of nowhere? Plus, the sheriff, who we think died, uh suddenly comes back and ends up. He's the one I think who ends up killing almost all of the bounty killers in the bar. And yeah, it's it's as close to riding off into the sunset as you can get with a movie like this. And as far from the overall tone of this movie as you could possibly be, diametrically opposed to everything that came before in the last ninety minutes.
5: Kabuche did the the only the one and only. Uh, Correct thing uh, after being faced with uh, this challenge to come up, please come up with a happy ending or a conventional uh, generic ending, uh, he made it completely ridiculous, yeah, and also not funny it is, also, uh, it is completely ridiculous out of uh, out of place
2: yeah, completely doesn't fit with the tone and that the sheriff shows up and he's just like aha you're not only not only, <laughs> not only <laughs> are the bad guys thwarted but that <laughs> But that it is the sheriff who we think is dead showing up out of the, I mean, it, it's, it's wild. It is just, it's almost a Deus Ex Machina, the way that he just swings in there and he's so happy to just be murdering all these people. It's like, where did this come from? It's amazing. The rumor I heard was that, uh, and this, this comes from Alex Cox, who's, uh, on the, the disc as well. The rumor that I heard was that, Z- Daryl F. Zanuck bought the film and for, for Fox for them to release and hated the ending so much that he requested that. But I don't know how much water that theory holds at all. I find it interesting that the idea of silence being mute comes from a conversation that allegedly happened between Corbucci and Master Antoni, where Master Antoni said, like, he would like to be in one of these, but he doesn't speak English. And I'm just like, well, that doesn't make any sense at all, because so many people that were on the films didn't speak English, and they're all going to be dubbed anyway. So that doesn't work for me. What works for me is what we're talking about as far as like a political allegory with him being silent. And also the spaghetti Westerns always trying to flip things around. So like, okay, well, you know, rather than a machine gun in Django's coffin, it's going to be something else in another movie, you know, or, you know, we've, we, I can't remember if blind man came out before this or after this, but it's like, we put different restrictions onto our, Heroes just to add interesting things that happen. You know, I'm surprised that there isn't like the one-legged bandit. You know, it's kind of like Mr. No-legs that would come out via exploitation film a few years later. And you're going to get the same thing when it comes to other Italian movies, like other Polici films where it's like, okay, well, this time the guy can't see the color red and it's going to have this effect on the film. It's like, okay, just throwing up those barriers to our heroes. That is mythological. in in a
4: very real way because it's something that you always see in, in the Greek and Roman myths. You see characters who have bizarre handicaps that are there really for no reason except to force them to overcome them in some clever and usually God enabled way. Something that lets them get past the fact that they can't see, they can't hear, they have one arm. It is such a trope in mythological stories, that to see them imported to the Italian Western is really no surprise because they are they are both partaking of a myth and then doing their best to reveal the workings of that myth, and in many cases to push it to the point of absurdity, make it in many ways even more powerful. And it's one of the things I think we probably all love about Italian Westerns particularly, but European Westerns in general. Because since Westerns aren't rooted in any national mythology,
5: yeah, I would also see the the heritage uh, of uh, uh, of myth in Spaghetti Western and in in the Great Silence. But uh, to ground that, <laughs> to, to counter that a little bit, uh, as Mike, you were mentioning. Uh, Uh, The the exploitation element. Uh, And this is something that we have not really touched upon yet. Uh, But uh, I mean, The Great Silence is definitely also an exploitation film. Yeah, it is is a great, uh, great masterpiece of cinema due to circumstances and to to talent uh, and influences. And so on. But it is, it is definitely also an, an exploitation film. And I think that's also interesting when we are talking about the trajectory of, of the Western and the, the discourse of violence that we discussed uh, a few minutes ago, because um, I mean, it would be so easy uh, to to construct a foil uh, and uh, to say, uh, well, the, the classical Hollywood western, it is always naive, it is always reactionary, uh, it is stupid, it is just for children uh, or for uh, right wing idiots. Yeah, but that that's also not the case. Uh, I mean, if we look at the the great classic westerns uh, by Ford, Anthony Mann and so on. These are also very, very complex films. Yeah? They seem to be uh, simple on the first glance, perhaps, but uh, if you look at them closely, uh, they are as complex as it gets. Uh, but they are not uh, explicit yeah? uh, in uh, a lot of the discourse. Uh, it's, uh, it's implicit uh, and due to uh, circumstances, obviously, due to the production code, yes, uh, you could not speak explicitly about some things. And this changes uh, then in in post-code Hollywood and uh, in in -in Peckinpah, Soldier Blue, Little Big Man, uh, but by the detour, so to speak, of uh, the European and especially the Italian exploitation film. So when we talk a lot about the criticism of violence, and it's definitely there. Great Silence is a film critical of of violence and especially the role violence plays uh, and, uh, and a capitalism, it is also uh, an exploitation film. yeah. And I, I think uh, that's one of the reasons why the film was such a success. Yeah, not only with uh, left-wing intelligentsia, but also uh, the popular audience. And I think that's important for the, for the history of, of the genre, too. I'd also
4: say that what you're seeing in Westerns like Silence and any number of other Westerns in which you have heroes, villains, or those characters who fall in between, who are differently abled to use the uh, now correct way of saying that in America, but who are laboring under handicaps. They're blind. They're deaf. They've lost a limb. They can't see the color red. All of these things are being reflected at the same time in martial arts movies in a really big way you see it when you looked at the Marquis in Times Square. You were always saying you know, the blind drunken master, or the the, the no the no legged samurai.
3: Are filled with a big
4: difference. The strength of their missing limbs
3: is transferred to their bodies to make them totally invincible. They become the crippled
0: masters.
3: The story of two young men who are cut off in their prime. They seek revenge, but they're handicapped by their limited knowledge of Kung Fu, never by their will.
4: That was very much a thing. And obviously, yes, that was an exploitation thing because it was a way of making your movie jump out from all the other. Jump out maybe is a cruel or funny term. I'm not sure. I wasn't. I didn't think that through from the other let's say samurai movies or martial arts movies by making people have to say, okay, I got to see this because I have to see, I have to see the baby cart movies because I've just got to see how that samurai who's got a little child in, in a kind of baby carriage trailing along with him, how he's going to fight off what I know is going to be an unimaginable number of opponents. With significant weaponry, so it was very it was it was a ballyhoo thing before you ever got to the publicity office. It was baked into the construction of the film itself, and sometimes the, the results were absurd and not even entertainingly absurd. But sometimes they were they were really fascinating. And silence is is clearly somewhere within that category, although I think it is more realistic in terms of a highly stylized european western than particularly some of the martial arts ones were
2: i totally agree it's it's funny because you mentioned the baby cart movies and i mean tamasaburo wakayama's uh, brother is there playing zatoichi the blind samurai and then eventually wakayama would be the mute samurai on the tv series which is a fantastic tv series if uh, if people uh, want to check that out it's great i think it's Released here is just the Mute Samurai. So the exploitation elements are, I think, what really attracted Tarantino to taking a lot of stuff from this for The Hateful Eight. I mean, as you're watching the wagon go through the snowy landscape, you can almost hear the white stripes you know, playing along with it. Um, I think... I wonder if Tarantino was hoping that Morricone would give him more of a great silence feel for the music for Hateful Eight than a, which what it was, was a rejected version of the, um, uh, the Thing score, um, which makes sense when it comes to the Hateful Eight being, uh, scored with the Thing because it's basically the same story as far as a group of people not knowing who to trust, but, that that's kind of the same thing when it comes to the great silence too, is that you can't really trust anybody. I did find it interesting kind of going back to the politics too, that Vanetta McGee is a African-American woman and that she is being called out as what they say in the subtitles, a Negro. And I was like, Oh, well that's interesting. Cause I thought for sure that she was going to be coded as Mexican or Indian or some other person of color, but that it was an actual, that they actually say a Negro. I was like, Oh, okay. Because you don't tend to, other than like Woody Strode, it's like, you don't tend to see too many black people in films uh, or Westerns. I was like, oh, this is kind of nice that they're actually just going for it.
4: It's not only kind of nice, but it's actually historically accurate. Lots of people of color went West. I was going to say along with, but no, they went west the same way white people went west, looking for the same things. They were looking for freedom from various kinds of societal oppression, whether it was racial or economic or national origin or a great mishmash of all of them, and went looking for a place where those social structures wouldn't be quite so firmly in place, and they might have an opportunity. To make lives for themselves more on their own backs, on their own personalities, on their own willingness to work with themselves, with other people or by themselves than they would ever have in the places from which they came. In that way, it was a great unifier. And certainly, historically, yeah, there were plenty of black cowboys. Photographic evidence is there. they They were there, and there are pictures to prove that they were even though they were largely written out of the history, certainly of Hollywood Westerns, except for the good black man. And that in a, of itself is a stereotype. It is certainly not a virulently negative one, but it is a stereotype nonetheless. And you know, people of color have their own history
5: of the West. And John Ford tried his best, <laughs> at least what was available to him as discourse in his times. Uh, but, yeah, I would definitely agree uh, that the, the Italian Western, it really experimented uh, with the politics of representation in that regard. You know, with the handicapped hero, we, we also have the uh, the wonderful remake of Zatoichi in Blind Man by Ferdinando Baldi, uh, which is, I mean, uh, it's... Uh, Completely absurd. Yeah, to have a, a blind gunfighter. I mean, <laughs> it's even more absurd than you have uh, an expert swordsman, but which can be probably in some kind of very limited shoots. Uh, but with a gunfighter, it, get, it gets tricky. And as you, as you said, um, black people and people of color uh, that definitely are there in the Italian Western uh, in the the great trilogy of Colizzi. Yeah, we have uh, uh, Woody Strud, but also in. Uh, uh, in Once Upon a Time yeah, in the West, in the great uh, opening sequence, where uh, Leone does uh, something quite significant, yeah, because he does not make a big uh, deal about it. Yeah, in the Buddhist root character is just there. Yeah, he's just a gunfighter like all the others, um, and uh, yeah, ethnicity is not uh, a big subject. Yeah, it is taken for granted because well, that's how it was, and that's uh, that's striking.
2: Well, then even going back to the Frank Wolf character, I wouldn't be surprised if he and his clan with all of their red hair is to represent the Irish people that came west as well, because there was quite a Irish population that moved west because they were being persecuted in the east. I mean, that, you know, we we, we look at Fist of Fury and the, the sign, you know, no dogs are Chinese. It was basically no dogs are Irish here in the United States. And we forget about that.
4: It's hard not to see. And yes, Irish people did go west for exactly that reason. Because they really were, I mean, you know, the term Elvis Costello used, "white niggers." That was that was who the Irish were. They were the were on the absolute bottom
2: rung of the ladder of white people. I don't know what it was, but with this movie there are certain times where it's like you really start to recognize the faces of actors from other films. Like as I'm watching, you know, Czech films in September, I just start to see like more and more faces. And I'm like, Oh, that's the guy who is this from this movie and from this and this movie. And spaghetti Westerns are very much the same. So I just wanted to call out, you know, I talked about Frank Wolf and uh, Luigi Pastilli as the Paula Cut character. As soon as he came on screen, I was like, oh, my God, it's Tuco's brother from The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And Mario Brega as Martin, who is Palakut's, uh right-hand man, I almost didn't recognize him because I've only ever seen him with a beard and being, um, again in the good, the bad, and the ugly. I want to say that he beats up Tuco in the prison in the, uh, kind of Andersonville type, uh, camp. And then he's also one of, and I, I think that Pastilli is also, uh, one of, uh, the bad guys, um, uh, henchmen in for a few dollars more, but it was so nice to see these familiar faces, and it was so strange to see Brega look completely different. That beard that he has just makes the guy in the rest of the, in these other films without the beard. I was like, this guy looks kind of strange. I, I think I know him, but I'm not sure. But wow, what a difference a beard can make! You
5: know, when I rewatched The Great Silence yesterday again, I was, uh, I mean. Uh, uh, Sergio Corbucci is uh, such an interesting uh, but also difficult case. It's almost impossible uh, to uh, make an authorist argument with regard uh, to the vast body of his work. And The Great Silence is on the one hand very atypical uh, of his work, but on the other hand it is also very typical of the uh, Corbucci touch, uh, so to speak.
2: Other than... Django, I don't think that I've seen another Corbucci film and I've just, I've only ever heard praise about him. So I really need to check out more stuff. Apparently some people group this film, Django and The Specialist together.
5: Everybody uh, knows Django, then probably uh, The Mercenary or, or, or Companeros. Frankly speaking, uh, Corbucci was a, uh, a hired hand and he was an exploitation director. But what, what I guess what he really was, always interested in uh, these were the rules of the game uh, so to speak yeah uh, the rules of genre uh, and he tinkered and toyed around uh, with these rules again and again uh, in all uh, uh, the the different contexts yeah mostly in the mode of parody and in the mode uh, of uh, grotesque he definitely also had uh, an interest uh, in violence that was crystallized by the great silence yeah but there's also uh, this uh, sense of uh, corpucci being some kind of folk artist uh, almost yeah and, and of course there's a there's a, uh, there's a famous essay by fred jameson uh, uh, the uh, uh, the critical uh, philosopher when he makes uh, the point with regard to Jaws and The Godfather uh, that uh, movies can never be folk art uh, at least uh, can not be folk art any longer because it's uh, uh, so much commodified under the rule of capitalism. Yeah, and it all comes down just uh, to being a good. But if there is a, if there is a director to be called a folk artist, probably this would really be. Corbucci, uh, with uh, engaging all the different uh, uh, filiones, that is, the strains, yeah, the strains within uh, Italian cinema and with Italian stars. Later on, he worked with Adriano gelentano which was a big, big uh, uh, name in uh, Italian, but also European cinema. He did uh, the Terence Hill and uh, Bud Spencer comedies, but even, uh, even early on in his career, yeah? he did the Toto comedies, he did the the peplar that is the sword and, and sandal films, and always uh, um, interested in the rules of the game and how to make a travesty out uh, of the rules of the game. Again, mostly in, in grotesque and parody. And uh, I mean, you could also read The Great Silence, the travesty of the genre, yeah? uh, to uh, really frame it in a bleak and most pessimistic and most nihilistic manner as possible. But again, uh, it is a film about the rules of the game, isn't it? Yeah, it is a film about the rules of the Western and how to break the rules. And funnily, as we said uh, time and again in, uh, in this discussion, nobody in the film breaks the law. <laughs> yeah. uh, but the film breaks the rules of the genre again uh, and again. Which, which makes him uh, makes, makes it so unique uh, a film, uh, and that uh, is, is is certainly is one of the things uh, that is uh, so dear to Corbucci. Yeah, to examine the rules of the game in that uh, in in that regard, he is really not so close to John Ford uh, uh, like uh, Sergio Leone. Yeah. Uh, Fordian air, um, uh, he would be closer to Howard Hawks in in his interest uh, in genre and in the functioning uh, of the myth. And not the nature of myth, but the the functioning of myth. Even uh, if he's a far cry, obviously, from the professionalism, the perfectionism of Howard Hawks. I mean, even the great silence and uh, Kobuchi in general, he's a kind of He's a kind of sloppy director, but in the best in the best sense. He's a lazy director. He's a sloppy director, but uh, like I mean, like uh, Johnny Thunders is a sloppy guitar player in the, in the New York Dolls, and that's exactly what makes him great. Yeah, being uh, to quote another than American Western. He is a lazy bastard. Uh, excuse my, my French. Uh, he is a lazy director who wants to go skiing uh, in the Dolomites. Yeah, but nonetheless, uh, he makes something out of it. Uh, and he is, uh, he is invested in his material. And the movies are dear to his heart.
2: There's a uh, documentary on the Milestone release called Western Italian Style that I think must have come out in 69, 70, something like that, narrated by Frank Wolf. And even though it's narrated by Frank Wolf, there's a character in there who basically is supposed to be our narrator, supposed to be our, like, investigative reporter talking to, you know, these Italian directors. What is it about these Italian directors and these crazy spaghetti westerns? And that reporter character interviews Corbucci very briefly, and Corbucci's just there bitching and complaining about westerns and that he doesn't like to direct them and then the guy's like well what's your next film he goes oh western and he's gonna make a lot of them and there's gonna be some good ones all right we are going to just take a break and play a preview for next week's show after these brief messages
1: sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons
2: there's got to be a better way
1: Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast.
0: Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by.
3: Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema and also the only first-run, seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream art, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, We handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.org, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, 48201.
0: Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamNeed.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at AdamandEve.com.
1: Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener. Chris Stashu here. If you're looking for even more deep dive film discussion both old and new on and off the cinematic beaten path check out the culture cast every episode i'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape talking about not only our monthly theme but also some of the year's biggest films i'm even joined by the host of the projection booth the one and only mike white so if you want to listen to even more conversations on film head on over to culturecast.com or find it on all podcatchers, both android and ios
2: Spaghetti Western Month continues next week with a look at Sergio Selima's *The Big Gun Down*. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Evo and Maitland. Evo, what has been keeping you busy these days?
5: A lot of zooming in, and I'm not talking about corbucci style zooms. <laughs> and I have, oh well, I have a book forthcoming on
2: um, media and genre. And Maitland, how are things in your world?
4: I'm not working on a great deal right now for a variety of reasons, but I am hoping to continue republishing vintage gay adult novels which I think shine a very interesting and very specific light on gay life in the 1970s
2: in the United States
4: and generally keeping
2: my eye out for things that are interesting. Well thank you so much folks for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.